Hey, hey, this is Mountain Bike Ben, and you're listening to New England Dirt on Mountain New Bike England Radio. Dirt, mountain Bike Radio. Ooh, yeah. It's fat bike season, and that means it's time to go and visit my friends over at Papa Willie's Bike Shop, the official presenting sponsor for this winter's fat bike series right here on New England Dirt. Now, Papa Wheelies has been in the bike business since the early 90s and now has locations in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Natick, Mass, and Back Bay Bicycles in Boston. They are the go-to spot for all things fat bike this winter with a great lineup of bikes and accessories from Salsa, Specialized, Cannondale, 45 North, Surly, Maxis, and many more. Now, in my opinion, the best thing about Papa Wheelies, though, it's not about the bikes. It's about the culture of that shop. When you're looking for a new bike shop, you need to know who's working on your bike, and you have to have a strong, trusting relationship with them. For me, it's like having a good doctor. And what I found at Papa Wheelies is a team of people who truly care about riding bikes. They work hard to make sure their customers feel at home in their shops and have all of their riding needs met. Plus, if you buy a mountain bike from them for over 2000 or more, they will buy you a one-year NIMBA membership. That's pretty sweet. So find out more online at papa-wheelies.com. Or if you're in the area, stop in, check out the shop, say hi, and of course, thank them for supporting New England Dirt. All right, New England Dirt listeners, you need to join me on Saturday, March 2nd for Winter Bike at the Kingdom Trails in East Burke, Vermont, a celebration of riding fat bikes at New England's premier mountain bike destination. Now, they do this in partnership with the team at Mountain Bike Vermont, so you know it's going to be a killer event. What a great way to break up your winter by joining in the fun with a great community of like-minded fat bikers. Or it's time to come see what this whole fat biking thing's all about. So starting on Friday, March 1st, you got to go to the Borderlands launch party with the Tenderbellies, of Vermont Bluegrass Band, I hear they're awesome, at the View Pub in the Burke Mountain Hotel and Conference Center. Then on Saturday the 2nd, things kick into full swing with a ton of various group rides led by such notable characters as Ted King and Georgia Gould. And then Nimba, they're going to be doing an intermellow social ride. Get it? Intermellow. It's like intermediate and mellow put together. Haha, <laughs> they're funny up there. And then there's also going to be a family fun ride. Now, the, all these group rides are headed to the on-tapped remote aid station, which is complete with a fire and a bunch of nutrition so you can get your energy back. Then enjoy a sip or two of Lawson's Finest Beer back at the expo area, which will feature a variety of local vendors and shops. Some demo bikes, some great music and fun times are provided by the Rasputitsa Spring Classic Founders. And with your admission, you get a lunch ticket good to either the Craftsbury General Country Store or to Juniper's Restaurant. There's also a six-cross race uh, sponsored by Garneau. With this, this is free with entry, so you can enter this six-cross race and enjoy and participate in all the carnage that that brings. And then if things get a little too tight, swing into the mobile massage unit and loosen back up for the rest of the day. I'll be there doing some live recording, to, so uh, come on, say hi to me in uh, live recording. So join me on this podcast. You too could be a member of the New England Dirt uh, community. Uh, so register right now. Seriously, stop what you're doing. Go register right now. Head over to kingdomtrails.org and do it. I'll see you there. All right, well, thanks for joining us for the 15th episode of New England Dirt, the show that takes an in-depth look at all things riding bikes on dirt here in New England. As always, I'm your host, Mountain Bike Ben. I'm very excited for this episode because I'm currently hanging out at JRA Cycles in Medford, Mass, attending Trail Talk. Now, Trail Talk is JRA's bi-weekly event where they invite a member of the cycling industry into their store to host a conversation with the community of avid riders located here. Tonight, they have welcomed Ken Avery from Victoria Tires. 
Now, you may have heard of my interview with Ken and Jody Stoddard from Victoria back in episode 10. But this time, instead of me being the one to ask the questions, this great audience in front of me, our first live studio recording ever of, uh, of uh, New England Dirt, they're the ones that are going to be asking the questions. Before we get into the, uh, the Q&A, let's take a moment to give Adam, the GM here at JRA Cycles, uh, a little time to introduce tonight's trail talk and tell us more about JRA. Uh, thank you guys all for coming. Uh, a lot of you guys might know me. My name's Adam. I've been with the company almost 20 years now. Uh, I see a lot of familiar faces. So thank you guys all for showing up today. Um, please feel free to grab drinks, food, and let's all hang out for a bit. Um, trail Talk, we introduced this year um, just to get you guys uh, a little bit more um, welcoming environment where you might have questions and we have some, hopefully some good answers for you. Um, we keep it simple sometimes. It might be as simple as how to fix a flat tire, what to carry with you in your pack on the trail. Um, but tonight we've got our uh, second guest speaker that's been already introduced is Ken Avery. Pretty excited about that. Um, and yeah, thank you guys for coming in. We would not be here without you. And uh, let's have some fun. Cool. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it, man. All right, so uh, we are going to open this floor up for, uh, for some questions. Uh, if anybody does want to ask a question, I ask that you just step up to the microphone here. Um, you want to be just a few inches away from the mic when you ask your question. Pronunciate nice, loud. Um, but it is a candid conversation, so don't worry about fumbling over words or anything. Um, all right, Ken. I know it's really difficult to get you out in public talking about bikes, especially about tires. It never happens. It, yeah, I mean, <laughs> what a treat. Um, but no, but seriously, I mean, it's awesome that you're here at JRA. You're about to kind of give a little bit more of a glimpse into the wonderful world of rubber. Um, and really what the most important part, I mean, we talk about this all the time. It's like it's, it's potentially one of the best upgrades you can ever do for your bike. Um, so I'm going to kick things off with a quick question here. From your expert opinion, what makes a tire good? And how do you know if that tire is good for you? Yeah, no, I mean, I think those two things go together. Um, a lot of people measure good a lot of different ways. Um, you know, I mean, it depends on what your goals are. Um, if you're a cross-country guy, good's going to mean that the tire is light. It's going to roll fast. It's going to be dependable. Uh, you're going to be able to go the distance on it. If you're like an enduro guy, you know, you're going to want, you know, traction, grip, cornering, all that. Um, good can mean a million different things to people. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, any good product is going to basically, um, you know, make you have more fun. I mean, it's going to basically add to your experience, whatever that is, whatever style of rider you are. And so um, the cool thing about uh, the product line as it sits now is that you have like a, a lot of uh, variation, a lot of options. And it's the kind of thing that um, no matter what you're into, you're going to find something that will suit your needs. Around here, obviously, we have a lot of rocks and roots. So, you know, you're going to want something that's going to uh, hook up on the rocks and roots. Uh, at the same time, you're going to have something that, um, you know, you don't flat. You're going to have uh, dependability and all that. So. Anyway, I don't know if that answers your question, but, it, you know, it's, it's maybe a vague answer. But for me, it just is something that when I end the ride, uh, I look back and say, um, you know, that was a fun ride. And maybe maybe the best thing is that nothing was notable because everything just worked. Well, I think that's an, that's an awesome uh, just to add to it. Maybe the right question to ask is how do you know when your tire is not good? Yeah. Well, we're just getting right to it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um. I mean, if it's not good, um, I mean, just in fairness to all the product people uh, out there, I mean, 
a lot of people put a lot of time and energy and thought into making a product. And so, um, you know, to say a product isn't good, no matter if it's a tire or anything, um, you got to give it a fair shake. You got to basically say, hey, was this the right product for the application? Was it set up right? Um, you know, all that stuff. Um, and if it was, um, maybe it wasn't the right product for you. Um, and then, you know, I mean, these days, mountain biking's evolved. So most things are pretty good. But if it just wasn't good, then, you know, you're just not having the experience you expected from it, really. Lack of smiles. Basically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Adam, we have uh, any questions that we can field now? Or anybody want to step up to the mic? Brave first soul. All right, cool. We got somebody stepping up. So go ahead and introduce yourself, and then uh, feel free to throw your question at Ken. So uh, my name's Eric. I'm from Milton, Mass. I've been riding in the New England rocks for quite a while. Um, but I've uh, always been a big fan of Vittoria tires. They've just been, they've been light. They roll fast. Um, but so questions for you on, like, tread patterns. Yeah, You sure. know, over the years, we've seen some tread patterns that were, you know, without getting into trademark terms like force specific or yeah. shock specific designs or directional yeah um can you offer some insights on that practical not practical yeah bad, not no bad. it's a, it's a super um uh technical question um and it's tough to kind of pinpoint too much but i will say this that um tires are typically directional um you know, coming from the roadside, maybe like a slick wouldn't be directional, obviously. But like if you're talking about mountain bike tires, um, you know, they typically are directional. And oftentimes you'll see like a V-shape. Um, if, you, if you're like riding and you look down at the top of the tire, you'll see that V-shape. When that tire rolls over and that V kind of then points backwards and then you turn, there's going to be a row of knobs or what we call effective edges, which are designed to oppose... Uh, the cornering force, you know, as you turn. So you're going one direction, you turn because you don't want to go that direction anymore, right? You want to go the new direction. So all those effective edges have to work to kind of dig into whatever terrain you're riding. And there's a lot of thought that goes into this and, and practice and, and data and analysis and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, um, different terrain is going to act differently uh, depending on, um, you know, what you're after, right? So like if you're out west and it's super hard pack, those ti- those knobs on the tire, they're not going to actually dig into the dirt, right? It's like a surface phenomenon. So you're going to have like a tire that's going to have um, some pliability, some siping, uh, a lot of surface area, right? But if you're if you're riding in a place like British Columbia, it's super loamy, right? Or even even around New England where it gets loamy, those knobs are going to dig in, and so you're going to want to think about like a cleated structure that's going to basically um, kind of penetrate that dirt and uh, how those effective edges are going to work there. So it comes back to kind of whatever your goals are and what you're trying to overcome in terms of creating that traction. The flip side of that is that you don't want to have so much traction and grip that then the tire slows down. So there's always this balance of how can you make a tire have grip but still roll fast? And that's actually truly um, a challenging thing as a product designer. So a couple other questions kind of along the same thread. So actually, uh, speaking of threads, thread count. Yeah, sure. Uh, high thread count, low thread count sure. versus uh, tire weight versus rolling resistance versus excellent question. Uh, you know, sidewall stiffness versus overall suppleness. Can you comment on that? We are getting deep in the dork right now. If you guys like, so I mean, we you know like the, not even the, ten minutes in. The questions do not need to be this dorky. That said, excellent question. Let me get into that. 
Um, so TPI is something uh, that's called threads per inch, basically, right? And so it's like you're buying bed sheets, and you get like the super high thread count bed sheets, right? Because they they're they're more supple, like they they they're like more comfortable. The same is true of tires. Um, most I've never cuddled with a tire. Well, Sorry. I mean, maybe that's what I do. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, yeah. But like, uh, truth of the matter is, uh, like a road tire will oftentimes have a higher TPI. And the idea behind that is that um, it's more supple, so it deflects less off bumps, so it rolls faster. Um, it's also more comfortable. Um, but you can only kind of go so high on thread count because the threads get really thin. And then on a mountain bike, you don't want it to be so high that then it's fragile, right? So there's a balance there. There's also materials. Like, you know, Vittoria is kind of known for making cotton tires. We actually produce more cotton tires than anybody in the world. Um, so if you watch, like, the Grand Tours... Um, you'll see guys kind of go by on, on tubulars, which is like a form of tire that is also made out of cotton. Um, most mountain bike tires are made out of nylon, um, and they usually have a thread count of about 120 threads per inch. Um, and so that's kind of the short version of that. Okay. Yeah. Um, how about tire life? So just to give, sure. just to back up a little bit. So I've gotten a bit away from playing with bikes and I've been driving race cars in different arenas for last number of years and i've been fortunate to strike up a, a solid relationship with uh, bf goodrich yeah yeah um and a couple of the guys that work there surprisingly one of the guys one of the tire techs there he has a phd in tire volcanology so wow. i've learned some unbelievable things from yeah. him yeah, one yeah. of the big things on a on a on a road <laughs> race tire for cars yeah sure um is uh heat cycles and aging out yeah sure. so in a car envi- a car environment um, once a tire has reached its proper operating temperature, 180 to 220 degrees with a probe temp, blah, 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 at that point, that tire has a very limited lifespan, either number of heat cycles or after two years after its first heat cycle, doesn't matter how much tread, you got to take it out of service. It's not like a street uh, tire that you would get on your car. Sure. What about tire life and storage uh, for yeah. mountain bike tires? No, great question. So one big thing that you're going to see between that world and this world is, is the difference in heat. Uh, I mean, you know, a car tire is going to, gonna, you know, a, a car in general is going to produce a lot more heat on a tire than, than a bicycle would, right? I mean, or a human riding a bicycle, rather. Um, so um, it's a little different. Um, I mean, tires certainly do heat up, um, especially with, like, rim brakes and things like that. Um, as we see, you know, most bikes now have disc brakes. Um, that's less of an issue. But um, certainly uh, the very small contact patch that, like, a bike tire has – um, you know, you're asking that little contact patch to do a lot of work. And so um, it's definitely something that we think about. Um, and there's ways to kind of, uh, you know, fix that um, without making this too much of a product pitch. I mean, I can tell you that one of the things that I was super proud to, to be involved with um, the first time around. So I, I spent 10 years working at Maxis before I worked uh, for Vittoria. I've been with Vittoria for about eight years. Um, and, uh, you know, we first did 3C with Maxis. Um, and then, and then we came over, uh, when I came over to Vittoria, um, you know, they were very eager to, to bring this technology forward and, and do a, a 4C makeup. And it, people always ask me like, is 4C just more? So it's better. And it's, it's, it's not. And here, here's the reason it's, it's actually <laughs> substantially like, you know, important plus one here. Yeah. It's not just like one, one compound better. Uh, it's not that simple. It's, the reality of it is you're asking the contact patch to do something. You're also asking the rubber under that contact patch to do something. So 4C is a separate base compound and a separate surface compound. So it's layered. And that happens in the middle 
uh, in the center tread as well as the side. So your your kind of traction, your climbing traction, your grip, and your braking all in the center tread there primarily, and then your cornering grip. Um, so we actually use four separate compounds. So it, there actually is like a real scientific reason for this. Um, in doing that, you're able to kind of isolate some things. So the number one thing is that, first of all, you can have a super soft performance-based compound on the surface that is actually touching those rocks and roots and things like that. But then underneath it, you have the stability of a slightly higher durometer. So the knob doesn't just flop over and rip off. Um, oftentimes, in fact, I have a sample right here. And obviously, people listening to the show won't be able to see this. But this is a tire cut from... Um, a guy named Tom Wilson. He's one of the top guys in the UK. He raced two World Cups on that. That's after two EWS races. Um, and if you notice, the tire shaves from the surface down. It doesn't rip off at the base um, like some of our competitors. Um, and that is uh, a function of using quality compounds like graphene compounds and things like this. But it's also about the 4C layering structure. Um, so think about that because... Um, that uh, not only prolongs the life of the tire, but it also makes the tire roll faster, but then it also makes the tire hook up better. So rare is it that you can say, hey, this super grippy tire lasts longer, but because of 4C technology, it's something that actually exists now. Um, and I'm actually psyched to, to be in JRA talking about this because truth of the matter is Brian, who owns the shop, was one of the first people to ride 4C tires in New England. He was, he's been a tester of mine for 20 years. And so... Uh, to come here and tell the story now is actually super special. Can you comment a little bit on tire life, uh, tires aging out? So, for instance, you know, people that ride their tires, they're not necessarily wearing the knobs down, but at what point does that rubber really, it's time to replace your tires? On a bicycle tire? It's a, it's a good question. Um, I, I, yeah. Just to put it into perspective, I, I'm a bit of an old school guy. I've got a couple of Klein death grips. Yeah, nice. I still got them. They still got knobs. So, I mean, there's things that, that are going to break down tires, right? I mean, there's, there's, um, there's ozone, you know, there's, there's UV, there's things like this. Um, if you, you know, go into like a garage sale and you see like a cool old bike that's been sitting there forever and you're looking at that, you're oftentimes you'll see these like cracks in the rubber or something like that. That's the rubber breaking down. Um, the higher quality stuff obviously lasts longer. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, you know, people have been riding mountain bikes for 30 years now. And, and so we're starting to see some of that happen. But generally speaking, anything that's like a modern product, um, you're going to have a substantial, you know, life out of it as far as just pure breakdown goes. And a lot of that comes back to the lower amount of heat that like a, a human on a bicycle kind of produces. You know what I mean? Um, you, you're going to you're going to find wear before you find like a breakdown such as what you're describing typically. Gotcha. Great. Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot. Yeah, no worries, man. Eric, thanks for your questions. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for coming up to the mic. <laughs> so uh, there's another question that uh, was handed to me by Adam, uh, by actually a, uh, an Adam while we're talking about sort of degradation. It, mm -hmm. And his question is actually about extremes and temperatures, if I read it correctly, having an effect on your tires. And here in New England, we've got mm -hmm. extremes and temperatures, uh, uh, almost a 60-degree uh, swing here in the past week. So um, <laughs> it's kind of gross out there right now, if you ask me. But um, so talking about extremes and temperatures and how that impacts your tires. No, it's a great question. So um, as we have kind of gone further into performance compounds and things like that, um, you know, it's something that is actually really critical. And it's something that, you know, I'm, I'm sure Adam's probably asking this question because He's a guy who, I mean, dude, how, how many years have you been commuting? Yeah, the question was more like about the cold end of it. Right. Because it was in reference to like the 
worst ride I had this year was a night ride when it was like really cold and I felt that, oh. Do you want to step up the mic? Yeah. We're so bringing Adam we're, up. We're bringing Adam up. We're going to put him on mic right now. <laughs> put him on the spot. He's, he's standing in the back. No, it was uh, like the worst ride I had this year was a night ride when it was yeah. really cold. Yeah. And I felt like I couldn't do anything right. And I was wondering if if I were horrible, it was horrible that night or if it's actually performance Right issues when the tires get cold and it was you know it was because you're riding. It was Max. probably mid teens. No. <laughs> oh, wow, that didn't take long. Is no. when I finished the ride, the tire was like glazed yeah, with no, ice, I, and I the totally, bike was I know glazed what you're with saying. ice. But, I, but it was, the, the bike just felt wooden. It didn't feel the tires felt wooden. And then like, what is that a real thing or is that like just a bad night? Um, no, it's a real thing, honestly. And and all, all jokes about Max's aside, so the. The reality of that is, is so um, typically when you have like a, any sort of a performance compound, um, it's, it's a softer durometer. Well, then that rubber tends to be more susceptible to um, sensitivity in, in temperature. So um, I remember racing Platykill downhill races back in the day. And the first one would always be like the first week of, of April. And we'd go there and it was like there'd be snow. Yeah, right. I mean, there's like snow on the ground still, right? People and... So we're racing down this like slippery, shaly stuff and it's super cold. And you think to yourself, geez, I got a performance compound. What's the big deal? Well, the problem is, is that um, you'd actually almost be better off with a regular compound at that point because it's less sensitive. The the softer compound actually gets, um, you know, more of a, a change than, than a regular stable, a more stable compound would. That said, two things that, that we've done is to play with the um, sort of the compound itself. So... Um, we found that adding graphene to the compound has, has really taken a lot of that away and stabilized a lot of it. Um, and then obviously, um, uh, the layering structure, whether it's our version of it or another company's version of it by having uh, a portion of that cross section of the knob, like maybe say like the bottom half of it or so around the surface of the knob, uh, be a different durometer. Um, that also helps with that stability a bit. Um, Adam, I know you're, you're kind of new to, to, to try and Vittoria stuff. And I mean, uh, you've been riding in some cold weather. Um, have you have you found that any of that is is noticeable in, in, in your experiences? I mean, I haven't had a day like this. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a massive tire, but I mean, yeah. I haven't ridden that cold. It's actually, I was like... What temperature was it? It was like probably mid-teens. Oh, damn. Yeah. I mean, honestly... So, like, I was like, done. I'm just like, that wasn't even fun. Like, right. Just not... I mean, yeah. No, but no. In... in in any tire's defense, I mean, mid-teens yeah. on a mountain bike tire is going to be tough. Um, if you were hiking and, and you were um, just like, you know, you had a you know, Vibram sole on, on your hiking boot, um, you know, in, in, the, in those kinds of conditions, it would be more slippery than the summertime too, yeah. right? And so it's kind of that thing. So you would the, see like 20s and below is when you would probably expect to see. Yeah, the, yeah. The compound just gets harder is what you're saying. It, yeah, there's just it's just it, there's no getting around it. I mean, when you cool something off, it's going to get you know a little a little higher uh, durometer that way, you know. But the thing about it is, um, there's like sort of like a, a usable um, kind of intended you know temperature range, and that clearly is more hardcore. Um, I mean, you definitely ride stuff that a lot of people don't ride, and and I, I think that's a case right there. Yeah, it wasn't fun. Yeah, <laughs> cool man. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I know that in, in the car world, like tire rack always has a big thing about how like you can run snow tires in the summer, but you can't run summer tires in the, in the snow. And it's, that's, it's not just about tread pattern. It's, it's a lot about that as well. Yeah. Cool. That Adam, yeah. thanks for that question. Thank yeah. Good. Great question. We're going to stick on, um, sort of cold a little bit. Uh, Andrea asked a great question. Um, are studded fat tires a must? 
If you live where I do, which is an ice skating rink right now, yes. <laughs> it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, um, Vittoria is a brand. We're not, like, super uh, deep into the fat bike thing, and we certainly don't have a studded product. But I will tell you that um, if you're riding um, around here, you know, New England, any any place that, you know, the tra- where the temperature kind of, like, fluctuates, like as Ben was saying earlier, like, you know, it's, I mean, it was, like, 60 degrees today, but, you know, it was, like, it was negative three at my house. Negative, right, exactly. On right. Friday. So, uh, yeah, three, you know, a couple of days ago, right? So, like, um, you're going to have a lot of, like, freeze thaw cycle and whatever that is. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of do think they're a must. If you're going to, if you're trying to mountain bike right now and you think, oh, there's a crust, well, there's ice under there probably. Um, and so, um, yeah, if, if you're even, a fat biker, it's, it's pretty, pretty critical. Even at places that they are regularly grooming those corners can still get real slick, even though they mm-hmm. don't look at it like it at all. They're yeah. Yeah. Studs pretty much. Yeah. No, excellent question. Um, so Sam asks, and I think this is a really, this is a great question, especially with some of the technology that, that you've, uh, that you've had a, a huge impact on Ken. Um, can you talk about sipes siping yeah. and what it does? You know, it's so funny. Uh, uh, if, if my friends in Italy are listening to this, they're just laughing super hard right now because I talk about siping like all day and they're like, dude, talk about sipes. Um, basically, <laughs> a sipe, any sipe in a tire. Said just like that too, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, they, they, with an exit. But yeah. So um, a sipe is nothing more than a groove in a tread design that allows some sort of a directional flex that, that is intended. Um, and oftentimes it's limited in some way. And that's kind of a mouthful. But basically, um, all those little grooves and nicks and cuts you see on the tire tread, they're there for a reason. Um, And, um, you know, like, I mean, as an example, like this Martello tread um, has what we call progressive sipe width. So we can pass this around. And if you notice, there's a center knob uh, that has three sipes on it. It's kind of like a small, bigger, and a biggest. Um, And the idea is that when it rolls, um, the leading edge is going to, try to dig in and provide grip for say climbing um it's also what you're battling against for rolling resistance right so you want to have like enough compliance to create that grip but you don't want it to be so soft that it flops over and then rolls slow right so we put a small sipe on the leading edge on the trailing edge where all your braking happens you put a bigger sipe so um it rolls right over it in the, in the rolling direction, but in braking, that sipe is fully loaded and, and uh, you basically have like anchor-like braking despite the fact that the tire still rolls fast. And it's sort of one of those conundrums as a product designer because you're, you're asking for things that typically don't exist in a traditional sense. Like if you were to look at like tires from the past, like your traditional like Panaracer smoke from the 90s, right? That tire had a big paddle in the middle and everybody looked at that and said, man, that thing's going to be badass for climbing. But then they roll down the trail and it's like, you know, creates all this noise and it actually slows you down. And in that instance, it's kind of great for climbing, but the rest of the time it's kind of annoying, right? And with this kind of an idea, you can kind of get around that from, from doing some design work. Um, take that same idea and turn it 90 degrees. So you'll notice on the side knobs on that tire, you'll see that there's a small, <coughs> medium, and large sipe as well. But what we did was we put the big sipe, the flexible one, on the inside of that side knob where all the work's doing for cornering. So um, oftentimes you'll see on a performance tire, that side knob just folds over and flops over and rips off. Um, The cool thing is, is that if you push on the inside of that Martello side knob, you'll feel that it's like super gummy. But when you push on that, if you notice on the outside, that outside of that knob doesn't move at all. So it's the kind of thing where you can have 
a really progressive ramp up feel when you're riding um, and have amazing traction. Um, and it's very predictable. It's very like communicative. So like if, if you're at the limit of traction, it's not going to just snap wash out. It's going to be something that, you know, kind of builds up progressively and it's very predictable. Um, so it's an example of creative siping, uh, fixing sort of something that's been an issue for a long time. So you talk about siping and look at that. You had a question about tire. Oh, oh, step up, up to the, the mic. mic. So this is, this is Scott Bedowitz. He's, he's a, he's a very fast enduro guy. Uh, yeah. Also, a uh, affiliated with 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 a shoe company that, that yeah. knows a thing or two about siping. So uh, anyway, been go in the on. product industry for yeah, yeah, totally, years. totally. So, um, the question I would have is, we had a question about like the light life of the tire. So I look at siping on the grip. The first thing I think is that's the first thing to go. Yeah. So you know, so that's my thing. Is usually you know a lot of times you look and I, I take a look at the tire and I say all the siping's gone. Yeah. Is that tire dead? Sure. You know, so we, so yeah. the thing for me is um, that stuff has great you know kind of benefits, but is that is it worth doing that if that's going to wear real quick? So the thing about it, it's a good question, and the thing about it is, is that um, people buy that level of a tire because they want one thing: they want that ultimate grip, they want yeah. that performance. Don't care how long it lasts. They're not. If they were just saying, "I want to buy this for purely longevity," mm-hmm. they might buy the another version of that same tire, yeah. but maybe with like a single compound that's harder. Um, and, and something like that. We offer a rigid bead version of that tire that comes with just like a standard, um, what we call Enduro compound. Yeah. Endura, meaning like it lasts a long time. Yeah. So um, for that very reason. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is a, a World Cup level performance tire yeah. and it's made for that. Yeah, cool. Uh, so on to a, a new question, I guess. Yeah, sure. Uh, with all the wheel sizes that have, you know, obviously been moving around the last few years. Yeah. Um, I guess I would say it was two years ago or three years ago where, uh, you know, 27.5 plus kind of came on with a vengeance. Sure. Um, in my opinion, things have gotten really quiet on that front. Um, you know, it seems like it's moved into specific pockets as to where it's, you know, um, utilized. I guess my question for you, without saying too much, obviously, because you were moving on much earlier timelines than most people, is what does your gut tell you is to like what's what are some of the new things from a tire yeah. perspective or yeah, yeah. without like i said without giving too much i'd just be curious as to where you see maybe plus existing there's obviously oversized 29er tires that are now in yeah. the mix as well um so what are some it's a funny it's a funny question in in a lot of ways because um it's super insightful in that uh the last five years in tires and wheels and bicycles has been just silly I mean, you know, you're talking about you went from 26 or 29ers um, and then you went to like three different axle standards, two different disc standards, like rim widths going crazy. Um, you know, I mean, and it's tough as a bike shop, honestly, because, you know, you're trying to stock stuff that's compatible with everything, much less what people are coming and asking for. Right. So um, compatible. Right. I mean, compatible. Right. It's a funny thing to say. Right. So the the reality of it is, though, um, couple of things. Uh, the bike industry is actually a small industry and it's the kind of thing where oftentimes you'll see trends come and you'll, you'll know about them quick because it gets leaked or like, you know, you're at, you're at a race or whatever. Like in this room, people have been testing 2020 product already. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, it's the kind of thing where if, if you know the movers and shakers, you know, you're going to see what they're writing and you're going to kind of get a glimpse of the future. That said, um, we've, we have seen a lot of things, um, going, bigger as far as room widths and tire volumes 
that are designed for kind of what I would say more normal use. So you're seeing like XC tires get a little bigger, like a 235 XC tire is like quite normal now. Um, unless you're like full on just racing World Cups. And even those guys are riding 225s, whereas even a year ago, they were like only two ones, believe it or not. Um, and uh, you're seeing rim with internals going. Um, a 28 seems to be a sweet spot. Um, a lot of guys riding trail are going to be more like on a 30 or maybe even like a little bigger, 32, 35, something like that. Um, the 26 is becoming a new kind of like a darling size in the middle. Uh, because it's kind of big enough to have a lot of that, the plus advantages without having the instability. Um, and so uh, a lot of that is coming down to um, people trying it, right? Because, I mean, people kind of gravitate towards what they know, what they're comfortable with. But the other thing is is that we're taking elements from other disciplines and using them to improve these products and to actually kind of break new ground in a way, if you think about it. So, like, for instance... Um, I mean, I started racing in 1991. Okay. Like I was, <laughs> I'm, I'm 40, but I was pretty young when I started doing that. So, I mean, back then, uh, pros rode the same bike in, uh, cross country, downhill, dual slalom, everything trials. It was one bike and an internal rim width was like 19. I mean, think about that. That's funny. Um, and right. Exactly. Right. SUPs. Yeah, totally. And those were the, those were the rims, right? I mean, that's what you rode. And so everything is evolved. And sometimes in the bike industry, um, people will say, you know, they'll take a trend and they'll take it too far as, as a way to say, we were the first, we're the only ones doing this. Well, dude, for a reason, you know, it's like, <laughs> it kind of went too far. You know what I mean? So I see this like uh, two, six size as kind of a correction on a lot of what's happened in fat and plus bringing a lot of that higher air volume advantage, what we learned about and bringing it back to like an everyday use. Then you say, okay, well, what about tire construction at that point? Cause you could say, oh, okay. Those, those larger tires have like a burlier casing. It's going to be too heavy. So now we're taking like some XC tire construction and using it on this two, six size, and then taking things like what we call an APF insert. So there's a little piece of a tire floating around here somewhere. And if you look, if you look like right on the sidewall, um, you'll see, you'll see a little red thing. Look, look in that little sidewall. You'll see a little red thing. Try to squish that vertically. It's really stiff, right? And so, um, definitely pass that around. Everybody check that out. Cause what that does for you is it pads your rim on impact while you, so like, it's really hard to pinch flat, but you still have a lightweight casing. So instead of having just like a super burly, heavy casing, now you you can have a sidewall insert that basically adds some lateral stability and it also adds some protection against pinch flatting without having a super heavy like DH casing, right? So this is a great example of uh, three or four different kind of, you know, subcategories of mountain biking coming together and creating something, a new trend that really is applicable to a broader cross-section of people. Um, so I don't know if that answers that your question. Good. Yeah, is that good? I got two other quick questions. What's that, man? So you're talking about rim width. Yeah. Okay, so I see a lot of uh, wheel manufacturers and tire manufacturers have varying levels of sweet spots for the recommended tire for their rim width. Sure. So I'm very curious, you know, because there was a lot of tires. uh, Ibis, for example, was one that came out with that wide rim. Yep. Was that three years ago? And, you know, I think uh, at least people I knew said, yeah, it seemed like it swung a little too far too quick before the WT treads and things like that. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. So... You know, I guess my question would be for, you know, like if most people here are riding, let's say, like you said, sweet spot, 28, 30 yeah, mil. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, you know, what, you know, I know it varies, but is there a certain, like, is there a reason why, you know, the different manufacturers 
Yeah, from a from a manufacturing standpoint, it's kind of a nightmare because if you so any any tire that's molded gets gets made around a certain internal rim width, right? And then um, trends come. Like, I mean, every month in this industry, it seems like it's so funny. Um, and uh, so, in saying that, if you were to take a tire that was designed on a narrow rim and you put it on a wider rim, two things are going to happen: your profile is going to get really square. Um, the other thing uh, is, is that the tire is actually going to measure slightly wider than it was designed for. So, uh, and then the tire might've been designed, uh, or I should say that your frame might've been designed around a certain tire size. And then you you as a consumer, you said, I upgrade my wheels. I want to upgrade my wheels to a new rim width. And, and then you put the tire that you used to putting on there and it doesn't fit in your frame anymore. And that's an issue. And then people get really mad and then they call us. They call customer service of Victoria and they say, what happened with my tire? And you say, in reality. It just uh, magically changed size overnight. Yeah. I mean. Well, it, it grew was, a little bit. Right. You know, what are you feeding that tire? This is a thing that happens all the time. And, and we laugh about it. But honestly, like it's super frustrating as a consumer. Um, and it's honestly something that has really lit up the customer service lines, uh, I think, for any company, truthfully. Um, Ibis certainly was ahead of their time with their wider rims. I mean, they were putting 35 internals on, like, an XC bike, which, which, is, which is neat. Um, but the thing about that is, you know, uh, when you do that, um, you know, you're putting an XC tire on it that has a pretty round cross-section. For a reason, XC tires are made to roll fast, all that stuff, right? So if you make an XC tire really square, well, you're going to be on your side knob really quick, probably before you really want to be, um, and then and it's not really designed for that. So, um, so because of that, tire manufacturers have really changed what that standard is that they're designing around, and um, we've done it. Everybody's done it, um, and so you know. But it's really come back to that sweet spot. There's a couple of different ways to do it. You could you could do like a sidestepping second product line within your product line, or you can basically just kind of wait it out until it stables stabilizes a little bit, and then kind of you know. And um, the good thing now is that it's it's been around for a few years, and it's it's really you know something that um, has really calmed down, which is nice. Um, that said. Um, there are certainly a lot of people who bought bikes in the meantime that, that are scratching their heads a bit. Cool. Yeah. My one very last one is yeah, uh, up, super boost and boost. Oh God. So, um, <laughs> this is funny. So, uh, boost spacing, I actually think it's a cool thing. It makes a lot of sense. So boost spacing is nothing more than a wider, uh, hub flange, right? So, uh, where your spokes connect to your hub, they basically brought that a little wider. And the idea is that if you look at the triangulation of your spokes, uh, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit wider based on the triangle. So, so it's a bit stronger wheel. It's a lot stiffer, things like that. So, um, that's great. You know, it went from like a 142 spacing and back to 148. You think to yourself is six millimeters really worth it. But, um, you know, it seems to be the standard now really what it's done has it's opened up the chain stays on the frame so you can run a wider tire and go back to what we were talking about a minute ago, where now you have like the new standard two six with like the better standard casing, and, and all that stuff, and your wheel doesn't flop around and all that. That is to say that the old stuff worked great for a lot of years, and so, like, it's all good. You know, just have fun with what you got, I think, is the key thing. That said, if you're buying a new bike, I would definitely buy something that's Boost um, for that reason. Super Boost is a great example of a company taking something to a level that perhaps, um, you know, uh, 
it was, you know, I mean, it serves a purpose, I guess, in certain places, but it's, it's also a good thing to say, hey, we were the first and only to do this or whatever. Blah, 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 blah. In reality, Super Boost is sort of a downhill spacing. Uh, you know, I mean, my downhill bike in the late 90s had that same spacing. Um, and that was a long time ago. And so they just didn't call it Super Boost and market it the way they did now. Um, I'm not shooting down the whole concept. I mean, you know, they are bringing those flanges out even wider. That wheel is stiffer. It is stronger. It's great. Don't get me wrong. But, um, you know, it's not necessarily uh, a need. It's definitely kind of something that is, you know, an interesting take on a design standard. Are you seven up? Yeah. Uh-oh. Cool. I'm going to take cover. So... D- this guy, this guy knows a thing or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one or two. So hi, yeah. I'm Sean. I'm I'm new to this. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, hard to get this guy out talking about bikes too. Yeah, he's another guy that. who talks about bikes a lot. <laughs> so something I was thinking about recently was if you if you look back to what you were talking about with the '90s and even the early 2000s, what you would have considered just to be like a mountain biker, mm-hmm. you know, would have been something really based off of cross country racing. Sure. And we rode. You know, if you were buying tires at that point, you know, and you were weighing them, they were closer to the 500, 600 gram mark. As a, as a 26,195. Yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. <clears throat> and I, I usually ride what I'm told to ride, so I don't really sweat the details a lot of the time. You should ride Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, with that said, I yeah. recently uh, got some tires, and as I was reading the specs, because I find myself pouring over specs when I need to. Sure. Um, the tires that we ride as regular mountain bikers nowadays mm-hmm. are really heavy. Mm-hmm. Thousand grams is yeah. pretty normal weight. So we're we're riding the weight of four tires yeah. compared to what we used to ride, but we're all going faster. So can you speak to exactly that what's is going on? That is a super insightful question, actually. And that the, the cool thing about this is that Sean's been around uh, for a long time. Um, he's... I have no problem saying he's an amazing rider if you've not ridden with this guy. Um, and so he kind of walks the walk. Um, and so you can kind of speak to it from a rider perspective as well as an industry guy perspective. And um, so with that said, um, yeah, I mean, it is funny to see that the norm is something that's almost twice as heavy, right? There's a couple of things going on there, though. Um, first of all, we talked about tire widths, right? Tires have gotten wider. Um, you can't make a tire wider without adding some weight. Uh, the other thing about it is, is that, uh, most people are not riding 26 inch wheels anymore, you know? So you're, you're talking about a 29 inch wheel with a two six with a wider rim and the whole thing. Um, and yeah, sure. They're tubeless now. So you don't have the tube weight in there, I suppose. Um, but that, so it's, that, it's that actually should be considered. The weight, so. It's still double the weight. weight. Any way you cut it, it's still yeah. double the weight. So, yeah, I mean, um, suspension bikes, pedal better. Um, even people riding hardtails, though. I mean, hardtail's yep. a hardtail from back then or now, right? So um, it's sort of an evolution. Um, I would say that it's one of those things where tires work better now. Um, the compounds are, I mean, you can't even compare them to back then. Um, tread designs are, you know, much more technical now than they used to be. Um, and so those two things together, I would say, um, you know, it's, it's worth the trade-off. Um, certainly there have been companies who have made super lightweight, high volume, larger diameter tires, like a 29 plus tire that is quote unquote, a lightweight version. Right. Um, and in, in saying that, 
oftentimes they don't last. Yeah. Uh, you're going to rip it the first ride. You're going to say, you know, it's not worth it. Um, it used to be that there was such an emphasis on weight um, because bikes were a lot simpler. There was less variables uh, in, in the than the whole kind of equation there. And so um, somewhere along the way, people got smarter and basically said, you know what? I want this thing to get me through a ride without pinch flatting. Um, I want the tire to be stable laterally. Um, and because of all that, like I'm willing to accept a bit more weight. Um, and then you add that to the fact that the wheels are bigger and wider and there you go. I mean, so, um, it is funny. I mean, you could look back and say like some of those bikes that you saw, like at Norba nationals back, like in the nineties, you know, they were like, you know, 20 pounds or whatever. Um, I, I would challenge you to ride a 20 pound bike around the fells. It, it would oh, be, yeah. honestly, it For would sure. be, it would be very unstable. For Maybe sure. this guy, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You and your 72 head angle, you know, we'll have a lot of fun, but yeah. <laughs> no, dude, I know. I love fat chance actually. Um, the original fat chance. So, but, um, all jokes aside, I have plenty of nineties bikes that I love riding still, even though they handle differently. Well, that's like what you were saying with super boost and boost right, and totally. bikes are really fun. Yeah, and man. We had some really old fun bikes. They're it's about fun. It's about so, just having fun, man. So you know? two more. Yeah. Um, I don't know which one to get first. I'll give you one. Is it harder to design a tire for a real specific purpose mm-hmm. or an all arounder? When you think about a place like New England where, you know, you talk about loam, the tire for loam is yeah. not the tire for rocks. Right. And, and vice versa. Yeah. So it's a great question. Um, and actually, this is something where we're just winding down cross season, cross worlds was just the past weekend. Cyclocross is something that is huge in New England. Um, and I would say. For an, so little tire. For we ride so, so many tire. different tires. 100%, right? I mean, it is. An all-arounder cyclocross tire. You want to talk about a design conundrum. I mean, you're, tra- you're talking about this thing's got to roll on pavement. It's got to hook up in mud and grass, and it, it can be no more than 33 wide. Yeah. Okay. I mean, honestly, like, that's a crazy tall order, right? And the same is true. I heard of- a great saying the other day that slippery is the most traction you'll ever have. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like, I like that. Um, <laughs> uh, I need to know more about that conversation later. But, um, yeah, but it's... Um, you know, the truth of the matter is if you have something that's a very defined, if you're making a mud spike, right? I mean, it's the kind of thing where you know what you're getting um, and all that. That said, uh, as a product designer, I like to try to take that um, to a more difficult level, I guess. I don't know. Because I know as a mountain biker growing up in New England that underneath that mud, there's rocks and roots. And you're not just like in a field of mud, right? There's going to be other stuff in there. Yeah. So it comes back to like how, you know, you design the siping and the tread design so that it can penetrate into the mud and clean the mud, which is really key because if it doesn't clean, then it's useless. Yep. But at the same time, when it hits the harder stuff, it also needs to be able to then work on that slippery surface, right? So you have like that surface phenomenon traction, which comes down to surface area, but then you have the, you know, knob kind of penetration into the, the loam kind of phenomenon. So it's really hard to make um, sort of like a mud spike have any surface area if you think about it that way. But, um, you know, like this Martello progressive sipe with it we talked about, um, that little super little piece I was uh, showing you around earlier, that's a Mota, which is more of like a, a wet kind of condition tire. Uh, both of those are examples of kind of creative ways to do that. Um, it, it does come down a bit to, um, you know, the, the quote unquote all arounder and what is, is accepted as that. Um, and typically what we define as an all arounder is something that's going to work in say mixed terrain. 
Um, so it's not going to be like a full-on mud tire. It's not going to be a full-on hard pack tire. It's going to be like good everywhere, but you don't want to, it's a really tricky thing because you don't want to make that mediocre, right? So to make a really good all-arounder is something that is really difficult, um, without making it kind of mediocre. You know what I mean? Um, and that's, that's sort of the art of this, uh, in, in terms of product design. I always tend to give up personally. I tend to give up grip for speed and i know that that's not always everybody's motive but i'm the same way and i think you and i learned to ride in an era where bikes were not as good i think so too and you know so like you kind of feel comfortable drifting but oftentimes i see people who are newer to the sport and they they drive their car down the street and they turn left and it goes left and they expect you know the same thing to happen on their mountain bike when they're careening down a mountain yeah and and that's not necessarily yeah it's not necessarily the case i mean one of the things that we said in the last time that ben and i spoke uh, was that if you can ski in New England, you can ski anywhere. Yeah. Yes. And I feel like if you can mountain bike in New England, you can mountain bike anywhere. I would agree. And, and uh, it's, it's for that very reason. Everybody listening nationally right now, <laughs> if you've never had a reason to come to New England, we've got everything. Right. <laughs> everything. Small doses. We beat LA. <laughs> no, I mean, for real, like we you beat know, LA. <laughs> <laughs> they talk about in California how you can like you can uh, you can surf and ski in the same day. Uh, you, you can you can fat bike and ride on dirt uh, in the same ride here. I mean, <laughs> and, and it's it's it's, it's, pre, it's pretty funny. But was it negative? It was like seven degrees the other day, and it's fifty six outside now. I mean, quite yeah. literally, we had yeah. like a sixty degree temperature yeah. swing. You want to talk about messing with your tires? It's like hilarious. So last one, this one, this one I always think about from time to time is um, if you're going to rate in hierarchy, um, tread pattern, compound, mm. casing, mm-hmm. and pressure. Mm-hmm. So it depends on um, what type of riding you're doing, right? If you're an XC guy, um, you're going to want that tire to um, have enough grip in cornering. You're going to have enough climbing traction, but you're going to want it to be really fast because that's your thing, right? You're trying to go uh, for distance. It's an endurance thing. Uh, If you're racing downhill, um, you don't really care if it lasts more than a run. You just want that run to be like the most epic run you've ever had right and have that yeah have that control and so you don't you don't slide out and all that stuff um so um yeah there is definitely um a spectrum of of uh kind of just traits that you think about in terms of that hierarchy when you design the product um but also from a consumer where um you know you're just trying to um, pick a product for your own needs. Um, and it, it may be that that person just wants the tire to last forever. Um, and, uh, it may be that they just want the most grip. I mean, it depends on the person. Sean, awesome questions. Thanks, man. Appreciate you bringing them up. Thanks dude. Um, so a couple more questions were handed to me, um, without names. Uh, so, uh, they are legitimate questions from from good. from the uh, the field of <laughs> attendees here. Um, <laughs> what is your favorite color? <laughs> um, so first one, and I think this is good to kind of keep on the conversation that we've been doing a little bit about the uh, the width of the tire. What are the advantages of putting a bigger tire on the front wheel? Sure. So yeah, um, a bigger tire is going to have a larger air volume, right? So. Um, back in the early days of mountain biking, um, all bikes were rigid. Um, and, um, you know, um, and then front suspension came out and it was the kind of thing where, uh, the phenomenon of a hardtail was something that, you know, obviously the bump's going to happen from the front. Uh, you don't ride your bike backwards typically on a mountain, right? So, um, so it was more important to have that kind of like, uh, 
bump compliance really um, on the front of your bike. And then you, you can kind of body English the rest with your knees and all that stuff for the back wheel, or you can kind of unweigh the pedals or all sorts of different things. But bottom line is um, the same is true, uh, you know, in terms of tire volume, if you were to put a bigger tire on the front, it kind of acts the same way. Um, and it's funny because, you know, the shop right now in the winter is full of fat bikes and stuff. And um, you see these huge tires and it really comes down to the idea of a mountain bike, which was formerly called a fat tire bike, uh, was meant to to do that, to kind of take that bump. So oftentimes uh, a fork is more forgiving than the frame as far as putting a bigger tire on. Um, so uh, a simple way to uh, increase your footprint for traction, as well as sort of your bump compliance uh, from the front is to add a larger front tire. Um, it's also, you know, you're only increasing the rotating weight of one of the wheels instead of both. So, you know, it's, it's a good kind of trick. Um, you can play with the angles on your bike a little bit doing that. Um, but that's pretty much deep dive on the nerd stuff on that side. <laughs> it's more, it's going to be more about how it handles. You're going to feel more of a handling thing. Yeah, I know. But, um, it's going to be more about that. Like if you, if you charge through a rock garden, um, with a bigger front tire, you'll, you'll notice that it's much more muted. Um, and you can actually, um, slap corners a bit harder because, um, you have that, that bigger contact patch. Here's a follow up question that I have with that. So, you know, two niners, mm-hmm. as they came out, we all started dealing with wheel wander, right. Yeah, yeah. Or the front wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that had to do with the angles, the geometry of the bike, everything like that. That was, that was really kind of causing wheel wander. Sure. <clears throat> Does the width of your front tire have an effect on wheel wander when you're climbing? When you're climbing? <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, it could, I guess. Um, I don't know. Only so, on right. Only on, only on Tuesday. Tuesdays. <laughs> right. Um, but does that larger volume yeah, sure. change how that tire is actually going to grip when you need it to? So, yeah. So, there's a couple things going on there. When 29ers first came out um, and, and the geometry wasn't necessarily optimized for that yet, um, people were dealing with the fact that the contact patch itself was a different shape. It was a lot sort of like longer and skinnier, you know, because of how the pressure kind of worked uh, with the weight that you were putting on that tire. Right. So uh, it handled differently and they they needed to kind of ride the bike differently. Um, I find that you need to kind of like lean on the front a lot more to get that tire to like you almost want to force it to not wander in a way. Right. Um, And if you look at a contact patch of, say, like a wide 26 as a sort of like an opposite end of the spectrum, um, you're going to have a shorter front-to-back contact patch that's wider because um, you're still putting that pressure down, you know, um, on that tire. Um, but because of how, you know, the, the tire is shaped, it basically has a different shape contact patch. So um, to answer your question, um, I wouldn't have thought uh, to ask the question in terms of climbing, but it's an interesting way to ask the question um, because typically when you're climbing, you're actually fighting to put weight back down on the front tire. So I think it's less of an issue in climbing. I think it's more of an issue um, when you are kind of going into like a G out corner. Sure. Um, and um, the tendency for like a lot of new riders is to like lean back and say, I want to like lean back. I'm scared. Right. And uh, and what they're actually doing is they're unweighing the they're they're taking the kind of the pressure off that front tire and then it kind of understeers and what you want to actually do is like you're skiing you want to lean forward and push that edge in to dig and then at that point it'll hook up and and it's a trust thing and it's really nerve-wracking the first few times you do it on a 29er but once you get it then it clicks and you say oh okay i get it um and uh and you trust it 
All right, got another question from the crowd here. Uh, is there any validity to the wheel tire systems, the new, like, Mavic is doing? Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, we also make wheels and tires together, and, and we, we talk about a system approach. Mavic's been doing this for years. Um, there's a couple other players in that field as well. Um, the thing about it is is that there's something called ETRTO, which is European Tire and Rim Technical Organizations, and it's basically, a, you'll see a number on the side of your tire oftentimes, and it'll be like two digits dash three digits. And it's basically the width of your tire and the um, sort of the diameter of your wheel. Um, and there's quote unquote standards, which is hilarious to say in this industry. But, uh, you know, basically uh, you're supposed to design a tire to fit a certain rim a certain way, right? And uh, that said, there's always variance. There's production variance, plus or minus, you know, and then there's brand to brand and mixing brands and all that stuff. Um, the wheel and tire packages basically are going to make, they're, they're going to ensure that the thing fits, right? Uh, you're limiting your selection a bit in terms of which tire you run. Um, the quick answer is it, it's kind of settled down and a lot of things work really well and are cross compatible and are less of an issue that way. But the quick story I'll tell you on this is in the early days of tubeless. So Stans uh, was a company that, you know, obviously is very known as, bringing tubeless to the masses. Um, and, uh, you know, they first, you know, obviously were just making sealant and tape. Um, and what they were doing was they were taping regular rims that were not tubeless. And so what they were doing was they were sealing them. That's great. But the, the rim profile was basically the same. And, and so what they started doing was making an artificially larger, non-ETRTO compliant uh, standard uh, to make the tire fit tighter for a non-tubeless ready tire on a now their, their own kind of house brand rim. So Stan's rims were notoriously really tight to mount, um, and but it, it enabled you to run a regular tire in a tubeless way, okay? Like a super, super duper light one that you're probably going to rip anyway. But yeah, so um, anyway, all that said, then what happened was tire manufacturers, um, this is back really around the UST era. UST was like the first sort of like um, mass-produced tubeless tire, really. Um, and really it just had a different bead shape. But tire manufacturers were trying to make tires fit tighter. So think about this. The tire manufacturers are trying to make it fit tighter. The rim manufacturer is trying to make it fit tighter. So you put those two things together and you literally cannot mount them. There were times in a bike shop where you'd get like one bead like two-thirds of the way around and it goes straight across the wheel. And you're like, dude, there's no way, right? So that lasted around, you know, 2009, 10, 11. Um, and I never threw a wheel and tire while I was trying to mount it in the shop. Never once did I ever throw one across the shop. Because there's a, I think there's never once. There. I don't nope. know, Ben. <laughs> there might be a hole in your wall, I think, from this. But, you know, in any case, um, everybody kind of chilled a little bit and took a deep breath. And everybody was pointing fingers. Oh, it's the rim. Oh, it's the tire, right? Um, whatever. Um, and in reality... Um, it was a double negative. It was basically a tight rim on a tight tire. And in reality, if you had just used uh, a regular rim with that tire or a regular tire with that rim, you would have been okay. But anyway, um, everybody kind of chilled, and now everything kind of works really well. So, like, for instance, our tubeless-ready tires, we test on every rim under the sun on the market. Um, it gets burst-tested on a, on a range of different rims. A burst test is when they, literally, they have a machine, and they fill the tire with water. 
until it blows off. And then, yeah, they basically take data this way. It's got to be such a cool job. It's actually, <laughs> sorry, like, yeah. um, what do you do for a living? Oh, I burst tires. Yeah, it's like what we do. So that guy looks at you and goes, what? Probably. But I mean, uh, and, and that's kind of how we, you know, derive like max pressure and things like that. Um, and you take a lot of that data and kind of compile it. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, but basically, um, it's a really critical one. Um, because, um, if you, it's, you know, in theory, if you buy a tire and, and wheel combination, it's, it's going to be vetted in that way right. in theory. Um, and so, um, yeah, typically it's kind of a no brainer solution. Cool. Um, good questions so far. Anybody else have any last questions here for Ken as we kind of wrap up? Yeah, go ahead. So, of course, I'm going to ask the lady question. Uh, but uh, so there's a lot of testing that goes on, and that's really awesome. And it seems like you have a really good um, kind of performance line, and a lot of research behind it. Yeah. So I have to ask the question, um, you know, is there any um, weight that goes into looking at weight? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, um, I mean, weight is not something that's gender specific. I mean, and so, I mean, if you if you were to, you know, meet a World Cup you know, XC guy, I mean, literally guy will be like 90 pounds, you know what I mean? Almost. It's maybe not quite that light, but close. Um, <laughs> so like, you know, um, that said though, um, at least with Vittoria, um, you know, we, we put a lot of emphasis on, um, female testing and input and things like that. Um, we have an entire, you know, roster of female athletes today. In fact, I, I was talking to, uh, Leah Davidson, a uh, U.S. Olympic medalist, um, who's riding Vittoria this year. Um, she's on a new team called 2020, which is focused on the Olympics, and they chose to ride our tires, uh, which is amazing. They came to us. Which I was fl- floored, floored. <laughs> um, I know, it's like so humbling. Honestly, I, like literally, I have goosebumps. Right now. I'm not. It's like crazy. Awesome. But like, um, my point is, is that I'm so looking forward to getting her input um, as a, as an example. Um, in 2015, it was the first year that we had kind of collapsed the GX subbrand into Victoria Mountain Bike and branded a, a line of tires called Victoria Mountain Bike and. Um, that same year, uh, Pauline Farad Pavot won uh, world championships in 2015 cross country, mm-hmm. riding the Victoria Barzo, um, and um, it was it was unbelievable. Um, and but her her feedback was really critical. And she's you know I would definitely say a, a pretty tiny woman, um, and she crushes it that year. She won cross road and mountain bike worlds in mm-hmm. one year as a 23 year old. Um, but uh, this is how much weight. Not to be too corny, but anyway, emphasis, I should say, (laughs) um, that type of an experience has because her significant other um, is a uh, very famous cross-country pro. Um, Yeah. Yeah. um, Can you name Julian Absalon. It's true. Yeah. So um, her guy is is Julian Absalon. So multi-time world champion, whatever, blah, blah, blah. 2016, um, he was riding for BMC. They had a continental contract. And um, I get an email from this guy, Julian Absalon, two weeks before the Olympics. And he's like, hey, Ken, um, can you send me some tires? I want to run these at the Olympics. And I was like, yeah, I thought it was like, you know, one of you guys. Like, register <laughs> Julian Absalon at gmail.com. <laughs> Literally, I'm like, okay, right? Like, there's, right, dude, there's no way, right? And he was like, no, like, I've been, I've been running, like, Pauline's Mezcals. I want to I wanna run these at the Olympics. And I was like, oh, my God. Um, and he's like, I'm going to block them out. And I'm like, I don't even care. 
like Sharpie our logo off and run them in the Olympics. <laughs> go for it. But my point is, is uh, and he had an okay Olympics. He got like seventh. But the the week after he won Val Nord World Cup. And from that moment, BMC as a World Cup team and as a company have specced Victoria tires. And it was because the, the seed of that whole thing was Pauline's feedback um, from back when she had that breakthrough result and won World Championships. And, and my point is, is that a lot of people don't really realize that they, they see, oh, Julian Epson, oh, okay, that's the reason that, you know, no, 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 that happened with a woman. Mm-hmm. And she's the one who validated that product. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I know like a um a thing that keeps coming up with friends of mine is um they've been going after like old like kids equipment <laughs> you know and like sure. anything they can get that's like really small. Yeah. Um and so that's another thing that comes up a lot is size. So like you definitely, you know, the smaller the smaller equipment is much appreciated. So, no, absolutely great point. Um there's a lot of um as 26-inch parts are becoming, you know, more rare. Um in fact, before this actually, Brian was showing me some two amazing bikes in the back that are 26 inch that um you know and it, it, for what it's worth 26 inch stuff is a, is a smoking deal if if you're of you know that size um but that said i mean obviously 27.5 being the next wheel size up um you know it's something that uh, there's been a lot of emphasis on producing stuff that's compatible with with like your smaller stature kind of a thing um so that said, I mean, as an example, though, um, there's a lot of ways to kind of reuse some, some things. I mean, um, there's a, a phenomenal woman named Karen Egan, who is a, you know, ex-pro downhiller in the area. Um, and, um, you know, she has mentored my daughter at Highland when she was teaching there and things. I have a 10-year-old girl who rides. And, um, you know, Karen was getting rid of a couple frames and was like, you know, would Tessa want one of these? And I was like, are you serious? So we took this, had it repowder coated. I had a new shock made for it in the back, so we changed the angles a little bit. And she's going to have a little Ripper 24-inch Intense as a 10-year-old. Like, how psyched. Mm-hmm. But my point is, is that, like, <laughs> like, my, but, like, how rad is that? My point is, is that it's out there, yeah. and it was considered junk. And in reality, like, there's so much good stuff out there that you can you can kind of tweak and, and you know, accomplish what you need to. Sure. Um, as far as, like, cutting-edge, like, new development stuff, absolutely there's other stuff, too. I mean... Um, you know, crank lengths, bars widths, I mean, you know, stand over on frames. There's like a whole bunch of stuff that's coming out that's more compatible as more women get into the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I was telling my friend Spencer earlier tonight that, you know, a women's specific bike is, is not, you know, shrink it and pink it. It's, it's made for the proportions of a female body. Yeah, and um, awesome. I think that's really cool to see the industry doing stuff like that. Yeah, and I'm definitely psyched to see that direction. And especially for my smaller friends, just like getting some more variety out there for them is awesome. What have you found that's worked for you? Is there anything that? Oh, you've I'm like a be- small man, you know. Everything's good for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. I'm pretty standard. Do you ride like XC or more trail stuff? Or? Um, so like I've I've been riding a cross bike that I got here like I don't know nine years ago or something as nice. a commuter and uh, mountain bike. I fat bike and I rebuilt an old giant uh, like last year just as a, like a road bike and kind of a tribute to a friend of mine and. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure I have a couple other bikes I could talk about, too. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Well, that's thank cool. you. Yeah, Appreciate no worries. It. Thanks for the question. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. Um, Ken, how are you feeling? I feel good, man. Let's talk about bikes. Yeah? You want to do a couple more questions? One uh, more yeah, question? Sure. Yeah, sure. Anything more. else? Yeah, what, what do you got? So, um, oh, step up to the mic. Step up to the mic. <laughs> step on up. So, uh, you mentioned about uh, different 
different teams had uh, different tires on their bikes. And, you know, you walk into any shop or you look at any catalog and, you know, certain manufacturers put certain brands of tires throughout their range. And that all happens at the, the corporate level and sure. the costs and blah, blah, blah. Not necessarily because this is the best tire, but it's the best tire for their product range. A lot of it based on price. So, uh, you know, there's a bunch of different tire companies that make really good tires. You know, sure. There's the M company, the K company, the S company, yeah, yeah, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But when it's time to replace tires – here you go. Sell me some tires. What's great about Vittoria that you guys can do? I didn't even set this product. <laughs> I was going to say. No, no. say money so question right, right there. Seriously. What's <laughs> set this up? No, seriously. When I first got up here, I said, hey, I've been a big Vittoria fan for, yeah, for yeah, many, yeah. many years. No, I, I love always it. have been. Um, but, you know. The, no, it's an excellent question. So the, the What first, do you guys do differently, basically? Sure. Yeah. The first thing I'll say is uh, no matter what you pick as a tire upgrade, um, it's it's really the best thing you can do to change the way your bike feels. Um, oftentimes an OEM tire, not, not, not all the time. I mean, in, in JRA, I mean, there's a lot of high end stuff you're looking at, right? But oftentimes in an OEM sense, which is called, or what's well, short for original equipment manufacturer. It's basically when you buy a bike and it comes with tires on it, right? Those tires oftentimes are not necessarily, um, the highest quality version or, you know, the best compound or whatever. Oftentimes they're made to to kind of put a tire on a bike that, that can kind of, you know, help sell the bike in a way. So it's going to be maybe, um, a lower TPI casing. We talked about threads per inch earlier. Um, it could be maybe not as supportive of a sidewall and maybe not as sticky as a compound, stuff like that. Um, so by upgrading, even if you do the same tire, um, with, with just like a higher quality version of it, you're going to feel an immense difference. Um, because the tire will roll differently. It'll grip differently. Um, everything you'll just, everything about the feel will just be different. Um, that said, um, you asked, you know, what's different about our product. Um, so the first thing is, is that, uh, we have a, a tread design for sort of every terrain, no matter which subcategory you're looking at. So if you're talking about cyclocross, we have the Terreno zero dry mix and wet, you know, you're talking about cross country. We have, a the Barzo, the Mezcal, the Peyote, the Gato, and now a new Terreno. So things like that. Um, in, in the Enduro side, uh, Moda Martello Morsa, the three M's we call them, um, in the Enduro category for Vittoria. Um, those have been super, super well received. If you go to pink bike, who doesn't like to give out necessarily always the most positive review, um, the Vittoria Moda, uh, got an excellent review. Mike Levy was actually astonished when he was talking about mud tires on rocks, which we talked about earlier. Um, and, and, uh, how much more of a, a well-rounded tire that is, um, so the number one thing that you're going to get from Vittoria is going to be quality. Uh, you're going to get variety. Um, and uh, it's going to be a performance-based tire that doesn't have the compromises. So typically, like we talked about earlier, performance tires are going to, they're going to roll slow, um, despite the fact that they grip, or they're going to wear out super fast, right? Ours are going to last long for a performance compound. They're going to roll faster, and they're still going to hook up on everything. So that's that, kind of in a nutshell. That, that pretty much describes my courses. Nice years. They roll fast. They don't last quite as long, but they, man, they grip and they roll. Yeah. Which is why I, why I love them. Man, it's so cool to have. Like, how many years have you been riding our stuff? Uh, I think I bought my first set of cotton. Cotton. Uh, probably, uh, must have been around 91 or 92. Yeah. We're going back a ways. Wow. So, so that's amazing. So thank you for riding our stuff and so, supporting us. Uh, so another question for you. So Victoria on the road side has been around forever. Sure. But Victoria on the mountain bike tire side pretty new what's the background there where, so you think you it's pretty from? you think it's pretty new um but um a couple things so we own our own factory 
Um, Vittoria owns a factory. Um, it's in Thailand. Um, and there's a lot of rubber manufacturing in Thailand. Rubber, rubber trees are native to that part of the world. So you see a couple different brands in that, in that part of the world. But um, Vittoria, the factory, it's called Lion Tire, um, produces tires for a number of different brands. Um, and I'm not going to name them, but you definitely knew who they are. Um, and, uh, a large portion of our business is that, um, so we've been making mountain bike tires for other people for decades, literally, uh, first point, second point. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, we are completely vertically integrated. I mean, we, we own our distributorships. Um, I mean, every, every link in the chain. So, um, it's, it's a great company in terms of that, you know, because like when, when we first started talking about, as a, for instance, like about 4C, um, they were like, we understand this, we're going to invest in this. And this 4C machine is about 100 meters long. They had to build a new building around it. I mean, this is like a major, major commercial investment. They, it wasn't like you go down to the machine store and buy one of these. They had to have a machine company design the machine that they wanted for this technology to make mountain bikers have more fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So the thing about it, though... Um, is that we used to have a sub-brand called GX back in the day that nobody could pronounce. It was G-E-A-X. Um, that was started in 1996. Uh, yeah, <laughs> everybody thinks they're saying it wrong. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, but, but I had a guess. Anyway, the, the quick part is, is that, that that came out in about 1995, 1996, um, and uh, had green sidewalls, and, and then we, we basically folded that into Vittoria in um, 2015. That's how recent that was, right? But all along, they were making mountain bike tires um, for, like I said, for, for us as well as for, um, for other brands. So um, we are not new to mountain bike tires, that is for sure. Um, and uh, all of the quality and everything that you've come to expect since 1991 on the roadside uh, is something that you definitely can expect on the mountain bike side as well. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so you also mentioned about colors. You had the green tires. And, yeah, yeah. and there's been, I mean, we've seen white, we've seen red, we've seen gray, we've seen green. We've yeah, seen sure, all yeah. sorts of different colors. And usually they're because it's, oh, it's a softer compound or, you know, gummy compound, whatever you want to call it. How much of that has to do with the color versus the compound? None. Is that just a, yeah. that's no, just a it, selling thing? It's an easy way to say that is this compound if we, if we only make that color and that compound, right? It's, it's, a, it's an easy differentiator from a marketing standpoint. But um, most of the time, uh, color is not going to dictate um, performance characteristics. Yeah. I mean, you, sometimes like natural rubber will be more like a brownish color. Um, something like that. And, and, and natural rubber versus like a you know, a synthetic kind of rubber will, will have different characteristics to it. But yeah, 99% of the time it would be black if they didn't color it differently. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. No worries, man. Very good. Awesome. Um, anybody else have any questions? Yeah. What's up, man? I said, I didn't want to be on this. <laughs> I know Mike, you're breaking your, your own rule. How you doing, man? <laughs> nice to meet you, man. Uh, nice to meet you. Um, so, in your, you talked about your design process in the beginning. Uh, do you guys do anything with computer simulation? Yeah, you do. I'm assuming because I just see all those knobs, kinds of variables, and how each one of them work both separately and together mm-hmm. in a system. Yeah. So absolutely. And that's you know. I do a lot of systems analysis and stuff like that in, in my job, so it's it's just kind of interesting how you're talking about that. So you must 
figure out what you think's going to happen before you go to mold. Yep. And they pour you mold, and then obviously you got to go test it and see what your gap is or how much that gap is. Did it work? Did it not work? Back to the drawing board, as they say. 100% right. Yeah. And so um, I've been designing tires since 2001. Um, the very first tire I designed for Maxxis um, is a tire you may have heard of. Um, and um, uh, But anyway... Um, and what was that tire? <laughs> what was it's, it? it's called the Maxxis Minion. Yeah. Um, and um, so I designed that tire in my um, apartment in Medford uh, in 2001. Um, Rock on, man. And, uh, That's awesome. We <laughs> shared a little geek out moment yeah. while, uh, while I was at Vittoria interviewing Ken and Jody, and Ken showed me the original fax yeah, that he, he had he, sent pretty funny. to Maxxis. How old were you? I was 23. Yeah, um, that's that's pretty cool. But but so I mean, I, in fairness, whenever I tell the story, just in case he's listening, Colin Bailey is a is an, was an athlete, is a mechanic for Giants uh, Factory Team now. Uh, he was the athlete on that project. Um, every project you have a kind of a key athlete you work with as part of the design phase. Uh, he came up with uh, what was an original sketch, um, but it was very different than what it became. And then him and I worked together uh, in the hotel room in West Virginia at the National and then also at Park City, Utah. Um, and, um, and then when we finished, uh, when I got the original mold drawing, yeah, I was living in Medford, which is really funny, uh, right down the street, honestly. Um, and, uh, you know, Medford Square. Cool, man. Oh, uh, Lakashas. Awesome. Yeah. Um, but, you know, um, but, you know, it's the kind of thing where, like, um, that, that's a great example of that process where you have, like, a key athlete, right? I mean, um, and when we were designing, um, you know, Barzo, Mezcal, Martello on the Vittoria side, same thing. You, you have these athletes you work with at the World Cup level. You basically say to them, hey, what do you need from a product that we can't provide you right now? And they say, well, I need some of this or other companies are doing this or that or whatever. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's definitely uh, a science, but it's also definitely an art. Um, and the art is translating that communication into a product, right? And so the reason that... I was lucky enough to stumble upon this weird path that I like went on was literally because uh, I was uh, I started racing when I was super young um, and uh, I, I got in I met a, a pro to race and you can hear all about this on Ben's other episode um, but basically um, I kind of had a foot in the door and I was just obsessed as a teenager with product design and the development of it. And I had all these these ideas for, for, for different tread designs and suspension bike designs and things that I would just literally draw in study hall in my, in my high school. And, um, That's what every teenager obsesses over. I mean, what a dork. Like, what a dork. Uh, but anyway, uh, and uh, this pro who I had met at the time um, was, was nice enough to, to take my drawings and send them to Maxis as like a teenager. And wow. Um, Maxis at the time was not Maxis as you know it. It was Chengshin Tire, which was not. It was basically, it, it is a major, major company in the world of, of tires. Um, but they weren't this like um, hip, like gravity company, like kind of they've, they've become. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to be at the right place at the right time, sort of in that way. Um, the process itself, uh, to get back to your actual question, um, is, is that, I mean, you have some ideas as a rider. Um, I was, you know, I was racing as a, as an elite level downhill racer at the time. Um, and, um, you know, and then I was giving this feedback. And so they basically said, why don't you just do this for us? And, um, so I started doing that for Maxis and, and communicating with people of the era. So you're talking about like, you know, the, 
Mike King, Brian Lopes, blah, blah, blah. Back then, um, Allison Dunlop uh, was a phenomenal person to work with. Uh, the Advantage was a tire that I did with her. Um, and, um, and you basically take their vision of, of what they need um, and, and recreate it um, and make a case for, for these kind of shapes that you put on a tire, which is so strange. But anyway, at the end of the day, uh, you kind of know what works after a while. Um, and so, you know, there were definitely times where we made a couple molds that we threw away. Um, but there were definitely uh, a lot of projects where you just kind of nail it um, first run because you have their perspective and you have the factory's perspective and then you have like the link between everything and put it all together and communicate it and make something really special. Um, and uh, there is a napkin drawing. Um, there are CAD drawings. There are simulations, all that stuff. Cool. Um, at the end of the day, um, when somebody just says, I don't know why, it just works. Then, then you know you nailed it. And oftentimes you get these prototypes and you test them for a race season before it gets released to the public. And oftentimes you'll win big races with them. I mean, when we did the Terreno line, you know, we won two national championships before the thing was even released. And it was like, I guess it works. I mean, you know, like the same thing happened on, on the Barzo. I mean, we were at Interbike a week after world championships when Pauline won the race. And it was like, we're just releasing this product. So it was pretty cool, um, but um, that's best case scenario, but that's sometimes how it works. Cool, thank you. The other cool thing that they have, and I was able to, to glimpse in the Vittoria <clears throat> headquarters just over in Salem is the, <clears throat> the fact that 3D printing is now something that they can do. They three, they've got oh, yeah. 3D prints of these cross sections of their, their, uh, their tires. That they're able to do right there and then and say, oh, okay, well, maybe that one doesn't quite work out before you even go to the mold process, right? 3D so, printing is really cool because you literally can you can print, like, six inches of a tire and click it onto a rim. And then you can do, like, a ton of measurements off that and make sure that it's compatible with the rims, as we talked about and all that. So, yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> I have a funny question about working with athletes. Yeah. So, because in, in the past, I've worked with a lot of random athletes. And the funniest part about it is that some of the really, really, really fast ones aren't that analytical mm. about their equipment or their gear. And they really, it, it doesn't almost matter. They're just so good at what they do. They can be on the wrong bike, the wrong tires. They're still fast. Totally. I remember yeah. working a pro road race and it was starting to drizzle. And one of the pro men asked me to pump his tires up. I asked him what pressure mm -hmm. said 95. And then, um, like you were saying with, with the weight of the rider, <clears throat> there was a, a pro woman that rolled up. And she said, can you pump my tires up? And I said, yeah, what pressure do you run? She's like, 145. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like this 95-pound pro woman right. at 145 PSI, this right. bike is basically like an ice skate right now. Right. So um, do you have any horror stories about working with working with pro athletes that are, <laughs> <laughs> that are really fast you know, and really capable. I don't capable know how long Ben wants the show to be, but I have a lot of horror stories it's about working like, with like athletes. the cold trickle effect. Um, I mean, you can, you know uh, – <laughs> <laughs> oh my god where to start so like they you know oftentimes you'll you'll be like you know, a pro guy will be like no 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 it needs to be this pressure or whatever and you go okay cool yeah i went and adjusted it for you and you give it back to them and they don't even know that you didn't do anything so like i mean there's situations yeah, i told like you that. you need to be that pressure <laughs> right i mean you know you want to take Laptop their feedback so much faster you, yeah exactly you want to try what they're saying obviously because you're trying to get their feedback but at the same time um sometimes the people at the top top are under so much pressure to perform that it's a head game. And so while their experiences of what have worked 
are, are very valuable, the fear of what might not work is actually way worse there. Um, and um, so I, you know, I deal with people um, at the top. We deal with, you know, Olympic athletes, whatever, world champions. But then, you know, I love talking to people in this setting in the bike shop and just being like, hey, what do you ride? How's it working? What, what's worked for you? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, Joe Singletrack there is going to be <laughs> like the guy who's going to basically just out having fun. And, and he's going to say, hey, you know, this is what's worked for me in a real way. And I'm not trying to sell a product. So here's some real good feedback. And I honestly think that's almost more valuable. Um, the other thing we talked about before is, you know, a lot of the women we work with, um, I feel like are um, just <laughs> more grounded with their own experiences. Like so often uh, there's this like tough guy thing which is to say like, I got to oh, yeah. like, I got to run this thing cause everybody else runs it. And it's like, but I thought you were tough and you can make your own mind up. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> and, and in reality, um, it's funny to see a lot of these people can't and they all run the same stuff and it's hilarious to me. So, um, oftentimes, um, you know, um, the females at any level will, will, will give really good kind of like analytical feedback that way. Um, and, uh, I mean, and guys too, I mean, but it's, it's, um, it is funny to me to see the value and, and the sort of the challenges of people who are strictly at the top Yeah. in that way. But, um, that's why we like to get a cross section of people. In fact, we actually, we're just doing a, a, an influencer program right now where we have people doing testing who are all over the map, you know, I mean, they're, they're, you know, social media f- people, they're pros they're they're shop people they're whatever and we have like a list of about 500 people across the country that we're we're communicating with right now for that reason that's awesome cool well that was fun um so sam asks uh can we talk about tire inserts and how it changes tire performance and saves rims um sure we can definitely do that so um we have something called an airliner that um i don't know you guys may have seen but basically it's a it's an insert that goes inside a tubeless tire um, and, uh, the quick version is this. So tubeless tires are great in that, uh, you know, they offer, um, a bit more protection. You have the sealant for punctures, all that stuff. However, when you take out, uh, material, uh, then you, you have your tendency to have your rim impact the inside of your tire and sometimes pinch through the tread. So, uh, tire inserts have become something that are, um, at least trendy right now, I think they serve a legitimate purpose. I, I don't think they're ultimately going to go away. Um, I think they're going to evolve. But um, uh, our first uh, foray into the tire inserts world is something called the Airliner, which is made out of uh, EVA foam, um, which I know Scott knows a thing or two about in the shoe world. Um, but basically, it's the same stuff that like the sole of a running shoe is made out of. And um, you know, if you think about how many steps a person takes during a marathon, that's a whole lot of impacts. Um, and so our airliner is something that can, uh, withstand, you know, 2000 hours of use and it's shaped a certain way and blah, 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 blah. The point is this, any liner that you're going to use is going to provide a cushion for your tubeless tire when it bottoms out against your rim. Cause the last thing you want to do is crack your carbon rim, right? Uh, or punch through your tire and then end your ride. The other great thing about, uh, a tire insert, uh, whether it's ours or from another brand is that it takes up air volume inside the tire. So think of air as a spring and um, when it kind of rebounds back, it can kind of rebound violently and and cause you to lose traction in a corner or something like that. Um, It it comes back, the tire comes back in a much more controlled way when you reduce the actual air volume inside it. Um, 
And so um, it, it adds a much more muted feel. Um, so I think, you know, like I said, I mean, liners, we make four different sizes of them. Um, it, it became something that was started really in the enduro and downhill scene. But honestly, I think it actually matters in cross country more than anywhere because your tire is smaller, casings thinner, suspensions less, all that stuff. Um, and uh, there's a there's a big case for it. In fact, we had an Austrian national champion win the win the title uh, this year, running uh, a liner for the first time ever in cross country. So I thought that was pretty cool. Great. Any other uh, questions from the audience? It was a, it was a any, long night. Any other any other horror stories that people are looking looking to hear? Zingers. Bring the zingers. What you got? What do you ride? What do I ride? Yeah, what do you ride? For a bike? Yeah. I ride a, a Zancanato. Um, Mike Zancanato is a custom frame builder out of Sutton, Massachusetts. Um, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, I went to UMass Amherst with him. He was the captain of the cycling team when I was there. Um, and uh, he builds beautiful custom bikes out of steel, aluminum, and titanium. And uh, so I ride, my current bike right now is a plus hardtail that he made me um, and enables me to ride 27.5 or 29er cross country trail enduro anything under the sun on that bike is great um it's di2 xtr with uh like a fox 34 plus fork yeah splatter splatter 90s paint job gotta have uh, that nice <laughs> yeah nice neon splatter of course custom, custom forks paint jobs yeah, yeah 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 sdg dropper yeah what was your first mountain bike bridgestone mb5 nice, nice. yeah Brad peterson smart dude yes yeah no i love that bike um you know, it was uh, the poor man's Richie, as they say back in the day. Um, but um, that bike brought me to the Mount Snow National, the Hunter Mountain. I got a ninth at a junior race on a Hunter at the Hunter Mountain World Cup riding a Bridgestone, like hilarious. Um, um, was it, year? it was. It was <coughs> now. It was. It was ninety three. And uh, yeah, it was just uh, racing downhill on a Bridgestone was another era. Let me just say that. But uh, I mean, um, yeah, it was. It was a bike that I wish I never got rid of. But it was. Um, yeah, funny, funny era back in the day for sure. What else? What else you got? Questions? <laughs> Nothing? Okay. Well, I think that might be it. All right. We might out-question them. <laughs> well, it was good. Uh, thank you, everybody that participated tonight, asked some questions. That was awesome. Ken, thank you, as always, for being yourself and uh, <laughs> being quite informative. Um you're uh, you're kind of a rock star, man. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> this is this is fun. I draw bad pictures of bike tires. I don't, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe every five episodes we'll just yeah. do another one I together. Know, man. <laughs> um, I also want to say real quick thanks to JRA. You guys are awesome for hosting this. I think what a great concept to, uh, especially in the winter time, keep people uh, psyched on bikes and uh, keep them coming into your store. That's you know smart on your on your behalf, but. I mean, this is great. This is a really cool way for the community to come together and get a sense of what's going on, understand the ins and outs of the industry. Um, I think you've got a couple more scheduled. Some uh, some other fun folks are coming in to uh, to host a, uh, a trail talk here. So big shout-out. Everybody give a thanks to JRA and obviously to Ken Avery for being here tonight. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you guys so much for coming out. Um, this th- This runs every other week. And if there's anything you guys want to know about, we, we appreciate your feedback. So let us know. And, um, yeah, we've got some other special guests in the works. Nothing uh, in concrete yet, but uh, please check back and see what we've got. Stay tuned to their Facebook page.
All right, well, that wraps up another episode of New England Dirt on Mountain Bike Radio. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, make life easier on yourself and go ahead and download the Mountain Bike Radio app because it'll, uh, it'll save a lot of hassle on your part trying to dig through our library and find the, the various episodes that you're looking for. So go on your app store or to the Android store or wherever you go on uh, one of the Android phones. I don't even know that kind of stuff. But uh, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll find the Mountain Bike Radio app. Download it. Get all the fun stuff. Again, thank you for uh, tuning in. If you want to reach out to me, feel free to shoot me an email at nedirt at Mountain Bike Radio or find me on Instagram. It's mtbben603. Love to hear feedback. Love to hear back from you guys. So, again, thanks for tuning in. She's whipping my face I'm going way too fast But I ain't touching my brakes Finger on the trigger shift Just swerving trees Catching the breeze As I wind on down these green and dirty trails New England Dirt Mountain Bike